0: And that, Socrates, is where parademons come from, their history, all the information you could ever want and need about parademons. Wow.
1: I I had no idea you knew that much about them. Well, I I am a man of many talents. (laughs) They usually have to do with going to some sort of uh, resort area. (laughs) Shut up. (laughs) Shut up. Back to the bin. I don't think they ever did a Jaws
2: kind. Not to the... did do Jaws 2. Not to my knowledge, but that Jaws 2 has been on my want list for years, and I can't... I mean, it's just crazy expensive. Any time I've ever actually seen it in real life. It's always ridiculously expensive, and I don't think there's anything special about it. I think it just, you know, evidently the, run the art on that? rent run was really low or something. I don't know. <laughs> you know who did the art on that? I want to say Gene Colon. Mm. I'm not sure that's yeah. right, because I might be confusing it with Close Encounters, which I know was Gene Colon. but i tell you what, Mike's Amazing World can tell us these things. Let's see. All right, there is no comic named Jaws, so... No, I think it's, it's Marvel a, Super Special. No, it is. Special. It's a Marvel Super Special.
1: And I'm pretty sure Close Encounters was also a Marvel Special.
2: was Marvel Super Special. Super, do you remember which number it was, by any chance? No, I don't. Number six. What, what year six. did it come out? Number six. Number six. Uh, hey, look at that. Holy shit, me so with a memory. It is Gene Cullen and Tom Palmer. Cover. The cover
3: looks like a Mad Magazine cover. Covered
2: by Bob Larkin, who we met. Yeah. That's funny, because well, Number five, I,
3: wasn't that a Beatles... One was not a uh, really that's one.
2: number four. Number, number four, five, was five, five was Kiss. Okay. Yeah, four. I just um, God, who sent that to me? Somebody sent that to me because I didn't. I mention did I mention that in an episode? Because if I didn't, I totally should have. Which which, which is four? four? The Beatles one. The Beatles story. Was by that, was that Russell? that Russell that sent it to you? I think it was Russell. I, now that you say that, I think you're right. I, I, think, think, you, I think
1: that's your birthday present. Yeah, huh?
2: yeah. I need to bring that to an episode. But, uh, yeah. That's, That's Perez, Perez arc, right? Yeah, Perez and uh, Klaus Janssen. Yeah. Ooh. It's beautiful. Really? It's beautiful, it's really? beautiful. I,
3: yeah. I didn't
2: know how uh, Jansen's inks would look on You know, Perez. I was, when I was a kid, like when, because my first exposure, at least, you know, where, where I actually knew who he was, was an issue of Daredevil by Miller. And I hated it. So for years, I, you know, I Klaus Janssen to me was strictly in the shit category, but over the years, I've come to realize that my long-standing prejudice against Janssen was because of his, asso- you know, mental association with Miller. Because I'm still not a, a Frank Miller fan. At the end of the day, I think his style is just uh, whatever. But when I've seen Janssen with other Pencilers. Now, it depends on the penciler, but usually I end up really liking it. And he had a run on Defenders where I want to say oh, he yeah. inked
1: Sal B. Sal B. Sal B. Yeah, Sima, re- but also I want to think he did
2: Giffen as well. I think, yeah, yeah I, he inked Giffen Yeah, Giffen came out. I yeah. loved that. I mean, yeah. that, I love that. See, I, I like Jansen's
1: work, but I think he needs to be with the right artist. I think, yeah, I, I yeah, personally yeah. thought, and, and I'm sure you disagree from what you were saying. I personally thought he muddied up Perez a little bit on the Beatles, and I thought a clean, I thought like a Tom Palmer would be better on that.
3: Yeah, See, that's what I figured. Yeah, I thought he'd be a good match, or he, he is a good match for Sal Bishima because that kind of has more of a savage or darker edge to it. I mean, Shima's Hulk is my definitive Hulk, and no one drew a savage Hulk like Sal Bishima did. And so that kind of that rougher, heavier, moodier ink that uh, Jansen brings, a nice compliment to that. But someone as squeaky clean superhero style like uh, Perez, I would think that would muddy it up a little bit.
1: That's what I thought. Uh, I, not, I have to admit I haven't looked at that particular issue in quite a while. But
3: and I'm not a fan of his uh, pencils.
1: Who, Jansen?
3: Jansen's, yeah. His His pencils
1: are now basically... Kind of let me draw the John Romita Jr. style yeah. with my inks on it.
3: Yeah. Well, well yeah, now I'm... They, but they so were. 90s and really goosey goosey. He did some Spider-Man issues that are... Really... Well, hey. That's
2: oh, man. you know what? I'm totally wrong. Uh, Close Encounters was not Gene Colan. It was Walt Simonson. That's what I thought. Uh, I thought it was Walt Simonson. And the
3: Battlestar Galactica one, didn't he?
2: Battlestar Galactica, I was just looking at that. Battlestar Galactica was, was it Ernie, yeah, Ernie Colon or Colon or oh. however you pronounce it? Oh,
3: I'm, think, I'm thinking of the uh, the Aliens one. That was Simonson.
2: Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, you're right. Yeah, because uh, I know Honeywell was chasing that one for years and finally scored it. But yeah, I don't know why I was thinking that Gene Colon on uh, Close Encounters, but yeah, that's Simonson and uh, Klaus Janssen again. <clears throat>
1: that's also, also a Bob Locken cover, though.
2: yeah. It's funny because he, he, you know, of of the different prints that he brought with him to Eternal Con, it's, it, you know, some strange choices of what he brought, you know, based on, you know, stuff that he could have, you know, could have brought. So, I,
3: don't know. I wonder maybe if he was trying to avoid some of the uh, print crackdown and stuff that... Uh... Some of the big 2 I've been doing. Uh, Imagine maybe. if you're an artist and not in, maybe not necessarily in the best standing with some of the editors there, you probably try to avoid that situation.
2: Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought of that, but, yeah, you make a good point. Now, Scott, I uh,
3: think I've heard you mention before that you're a Bob Hall fan. Is that correct?
2: Bob Hall? Um. I'm trying to think. What, what did he work on? West Coast on?
3: Adventures. He did uh, some Champions work. I think he, uh, inked burn on a few annuals and stuff too. I, maybe I not. maybe not. I think
2: I may have said it and I think I may have had him confused with Bob Brown, but I, am I'm, I'm okay. trying to remember. I, I, it sounds familiar as somebody that I, you know, whose work I might like, but I just can't
3: maybe picture I was it off the top of saying, my head. Maybe I was thinking you had said, uh, Bob Brown then, but, uh, no, I was in a book shop digging through the cheap bins today and I came across, uh, this Armed and Dangerous miniseries by Bob Hall, creator-owned stuff. uh, Hmm. Seems like it's pretty much a uh, Sin City ripoff in both uh, style. I mean, it's black and white art, but very much done in that Miller style. And so you mentioned and you weren't a a fan of Miller. I wondered if you'd ever seen this Bob Hall, creator-owned stuff in the 90s.
2: Not to my knowledge. Got a lot of of naked ladies in it. Ooh, I like that.
3: Sounds appealing.
1: <laughs> it's not the ladies that Bill was just looking at.
2: Uh-oh. The 300-pound lesbians in the desert. Oh, good Lord. Bill, what have we told you about that? Bill, oh, you still here? Yeah, I'm here.
1: He's <laughs> just, just going through those photos.
2: <laughs> no, I'm
1: not on that anymore. There was only That's so yesterday. Anyway, you know what? Let's just bring this thing in. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro. I am joined by a very strange Dr. Bill. What? Huh? Well, with the stuff you're looking at here. Dr. Strange, Dr. Bill? Dr. Strange, Dr. Bill. Dr. strange <laughs> Bill. Dr. Strange Bill. Dr. Strange Bill. <laughs> and Mr. Scott H. Gardner.
2: How's it going? H for hate oh, <laughs>
1: And we have somebody new to give us some laws today. Yes. Ah, ah. There you go. The host of King Size Comics, Giant Size Fun, Kyle Benning. Hey, thanks for having me. Ah, no problem. Thanks for coming aboard. This way, we have you on so you can do all the work for us. I'm sorry Chewbacca calling me.
3: I'm just excited to be on a show where there's some actual editing done, so maybe I sound like less of an idiot than I do on my own show.
1: <laughs> well, Dr. Bill will tell you, the editing... <laughs> The editing sometimes is made done to <laughs> emphasize, <laughs> emphasize you know. accentuate
0: the, yeah, whatever exactly.
1: And sometimes I don't have to edit at all, <laughs> anyway. So, why don't you pimp your show a little bit before we get started?
3: Well, okay, I guess I have uh, that feed uh, King size comics, giant size fun. Uh, there's a bunch of different shows that show up on that sometimes i talk about ninja turtles sometimes i talk about giant-sized comics from the bronze age or silver age uh also do a crisis on multiple earths show that's uh been in a long delay the fourth episode of that will actually be coming out out uh, a couple hours after we record this i just need to finish editing it finally and get it out that one i do edit uh uh, talk about some golden age comics on that too that's been a lot of fun and then uh, i have another show the uh, superman and captain marvel power hour where i've just been working through the um, superman from the 30s to the 70s hardcover and the shazam from the 40s to the 70s hardcover so i just cover a superman and captain marvel story each episode that's been a lot of fun
1: cool. Yeah, I've been, I've been, I I've I I think I con- had contacted you a while back. I was having some trouble with the feed. I was downloading stuff, but then I wasn't able to listen to it.
3: But that yeah, seems to I have worked
1: itself out now.
3: I think I figured out what was going on there. Is, so uh, most of the time I record in my car or my lunch hour on my iPhone. And the program I use, the format saves it in like an AIFF audio format. And so unless you were pulling that on a fairly recent apple device through itunes it wouldn't play now i've converted them all to mp3 all the recent episodes going back to november so I haven't had any issues since then but
1: okay explain my it because my, my ipod is ancient
3: yeah a couple other people had contacted me that it seemed the the biggest uh, offender was the people trying to listen to it on an android phone with some podcasting app it, didn't, it wouldn't play on android phones so yeah, it was weird. I could not ever get it to, to duplicate it because I'd try it on the uh, different desktops and everything too, and just pulling up like the internet window and it worked for me.
1: So. And that's all that's important, isn't it?
3: Yeah, that's right. I listen, myself.
1: I'm like Andy Living. So yeah, we've been talking. You and I have been going back and forth. I don't know how long it's taken for to actually get you on here. But yeah, like we'd originally
3: it. talked about it in August, and then I moved the uh, into September, and I've just kind of been doing home improvement projects since then. So.
1: And then we had to have our, our month of hating each other during the baseball playoffs.
3: Yeah. Well, that series didn't last too long, so. <laughs> unfortunately.
1: Well, we let you have the regular season, and we took the playoffs. It seems fair to me.
3: I, I actually read an article going into that that was 10 uh, reasons why the Mets will beat the Cubs, and it was, like, reason number three. Because the Cubs had beat them seven games to nothing in the regular season, that meant the Mets would win four out of seven. Okay, great internet logic there.
1: Well, you know what? In in 1988, the Mets played the Dodgers. Back then, it was the schedule was different. I think they played them 16 times, something like that. Yeah, because you didn't season. have
3: interleague play.
1: And they And there. they won 15 out of 16 games in the regular season, and then they lost to them in the playoffs. So I subscribe to that theory now. You, if you beat them too much during the regular season, then you lose to them in the playoffs.
3: Same goes uh, for football. I remember God, it would have had to been around uh, 99, 2000. The Rams were just coming off winning the Super Bowl. They still had Kurt Warner as their quarterback. And uh, Kurt Warner's from Iowa. He grew up a hour away from where I live. And so everybody was big Rams fans then when that was going on, following him. And uh, they had murdered the Saints Twice in the regular season, including the week before the first round of the playoffs, and then the Saints beat them in the playoffs. First round.
1: Yeah, I, I never understood that logic in football when they say, "Oh, it's really, more, it's it's so much more difficult to beat a team three times in a season." I don't know if you're better than them, why wouldn't you? It just doesn't like the logic just doesn't hold with me. But Scott, maybe you could shed some light on.
2: That. <laughs> I hate football.
1: Well, that actually is football. <laughs> That joke falls flat when we're actually talking about. But then it is reality, then. It's no longer a joke. It's just, the, just the, your true opinion.
2: What should, anyway. what should I have said? Actually,
3: I was NFL, NFL Super Pro is your favorite comic <laughs> of all time.
0: I was about to bust in and ask Scott, so you think Cap's going to take Iron Man this, this season or what?
3: <laughs> what do you guys think on that? Do you think uh, they're going to go with the obvious and have cap die there or do you think they're going to off iron
2: man you know i'm i kind of hope nobody dies you know i maybe that's kind of a wuss answer but i I really hope that they that they don't go that route you know i i one of the, the the hallmarks of the marvel cinematic universe one of the things that i think has made it um distinct from you know their their competition so to speak is that they have no competition it, well yeah that <laughs> that's one thing but you know they they don't go dark even when they go dark you know i mean a lot of people said ooh what a dark movie winter soldier was and it was a more a, a adult story it was you know it, it was different from you know your traditional superhero fare. It was a very different movie than, say, you know the the movie directly before it, uh, the first Captain America, you know, which was a straight up, you know, rah rah patriotism, you know, superhero flick. Winter Soldier was very different. But even as you know, and, and I'm saying this all in air quotes, even as dark as it was, it was still fun. You know, it was still a, a really good ride and you know a very enjoyable movie. And it and it didn't go for again what their competition seems to think of as dark so I'm hoping that they kind of keep it that way where it's it's light it's fun, it's enjoyable they, they can get serious and they can you know have the heroes punching each other and everything but at the end of the day I, I don't really want them to go that route and one of the biggest reasons I don't want them to is and this is, you know, I will admit this is completely selfish on my part but I don't want them to kill anybody off because I you know the 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 person I fear that they would kill if they kill anybody would be Cap himself and I don't want them to go the same route the comics went because I think that replacing trying to replace Steve Rogers with anybody is just a bad move but I'm worried about who they would try to do that with in the cinematic universe and I I just feel it would just not work it would come off as either grown worthy or laughable or maybe a, a bit of both I'm just hoping that's not the direction that we're gonna go with this whole thing and um, you know even if it's not you know the the quote unquote obvious death with cap you know like what happened in this in the comic book Civil War I'm also kind of hoping that we don't lose anybody of the other characters either, you know, just for that shock value, you know, because in the, in, again, in the comic book Civil War, it was what? It was, um, um, Black Goliath, right? Yep.
1: No, well, he, oh, in Civil War, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And
3: he was killed by the Thor clone.
1: Yeah. But at that point, he was just giant, he was giant.
2: Right. Yeah, I was going to say giant man, but I didn't, you know, for, for listeners that may not be exactly familiar with the, you know, with the differences between the, the comic book Civil War and you know the upcoming movie Civil War, I, I was just trying to draw that distinction between, you know, that version of, of Giant Man and the and the you know, I, again, I'm pretty sure we're going to get Giant Man in this new movie coming up. Or at least that's you know one of the big rumors. Um, but I mean, you know, that character doesn't exist yet for this movie so that means they they would have to draw from the pool of available characters and i know you know based on the trailer everybody's speculating that it might be roadie and and all that but again i you know i hope not i mean because for one you know there's a character i I really like and and that sort of thing but i mean why 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 would you want to kill him off if it's just for for shock value or what give me give me a different shock i that's not one that i need give me something different you know have some hero do something you know drastic or, or seemingly out of character or whatever you know some other shock but you know don't don't just kill one of them just to kill one of them because might,
1: my thought is they might want to kill say Robert Downey Jr. it's Tony Stark because Robert Downey Jr. is now 51 years old and they're thinking nah, he can't really do this much more
3: that but, was my thought.
1: But well, I would rather I and we've had this discussion before. I would rather they just wait a while and recast right. Tony Stark as somebody else than kill off Tony Stark.
2: I was just going to say the same thing because yes, Tony, uh, excuse me, Robert Downey Jr. may be aging out of the role, but you know, we're, are we are we ready to be done with Iron Man? I don't think so. And I really, you know, there, there's a couple of characters I really look forward to uh, having moments with Thanos. Probably the two biggest characters I'm looking forward to having a moment with Thanos are, for one, Cap. I want to see Cap, you know, defiantly stand up against Thanos now it's been ages since I've read Infinity Gauntlet but if I'm not mistaken didn't Cap have a moment of defiance with Thanos in that where where essentially oh, yeah. Thanos just looked at him like Pff, you know who who are you you know you're just a puny powerless human what can you do but Cap still stands his ground I kind of want to see that with the the you know with the cinematic universe versions of these characters you know I want to see Chris Evans stand up to Thanos But also, I want to see that moment with Tony Stark. I want to see Tony Stark's Iron Man uh, have that moment, and you know whatever you know shape that moment takes, whether it's being a wise ass or maybe even you know a a moment of terror, realizing that he's way out of his depth or something, Whatever form that takes, that's a moment I'm really looking forward to. Plus, I want to see moments with uh, with Tony Stark uh just with the the broader universe because there's a lot of beats that we haven't gotten yet it's funny i was just thinking about this the other day i was thinking about the scene in uh avengers age of ultron where they're all gathered around and everybody's trying to lift thor's hammer and there's a a a very casual line of dialogue from tony where he asks thor you know if i'm able to lift the hammer then i get to rule asgard or however he words it and i got to thinking you know that's that's implying a very casual acceptance of the fact that Tony buys into all this, that, that he really believes that Thor is you know myth you know the actual mythological character. And that's really cool except that I would like to have seen that because I'm a huge fan of a, a miniseries they did. gosh it's probably going back about 10 years or so. Um, I think it was just called Earth's Mightiest Heroes if I'm not mistaken. And it was a it was an eight issue mini. I remember Scott Collins did the art. I don't remember who wrote it. And it was kind of a a retelling and kind of a modernization of the first I don't know fifteen or so issues of the Avengers, you know, Volume One.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And but what that series did that I really liked was that, as well as retelling a lot of those classic stories, like when they found Cap and and different things it also filled in a lot of gutters of the story. So you learned, you know, more of how did they gel as a team, how did they kind of come together and find each other, and, uh, you know, just moments that you didn't necessarily see in the issues as they were presented in the 60s, but in in between moments. And one of the greatest in-between moments is where, essentially, Iron Man calls bullshit on Thor. And so Thor he did and it's been a while since i've read it i really need to reread it but thor did something where for a brief moment he was able to expand tony's i don't know it, it was his like perception of the universe or something like that and show him that he wasn't bullshit and that was really cool because it kind of rocked tony's uh, world, you know, it kind of rocked his worldview in the sense of, okay, you're a man of science and and you know, you're kind of like have kind of like a I have to be able to to touch it or taste it or, or feel it, kind of guy in order to be able to embrace something. And now here he is confronted with magic, essentially. And it going really counter to how he perceived the world. And, and Thor kind of opened that up for him. And that was really cool because, that's a, again, that's a moment we didn't get back in the 60s. We didn't get a lot of those personal interactions. They just all kind of fell in together and became the Avengers. But we never really saw that happen. And so that's a moment I'd really like to see in the cinematic universe. Is I, I kind of want to see Tony Stark you know, in these more cosmic... Uh, situations. I would like to see Tony on Asgard. You know, Tony uh, in space, meeting the the Guardians, and and again, you know, going up against Thanos and that sort of thing. I mean, I wanna, I, I want to see that kind of with all the characters. But again, you know, the the big two for me are are, are Cap and Iron Man because well, they kind of
1: sure just mm-hmm. just to take the whole uh, aspect of you know story out of it. I'm pretty sure that Chris Evans and Robert Downey Jr. are signed through the uh infinity gauntlet movie
3: yeah and see that movie also gives you some freedom that's if one of them does die here you could reasonably assume that in the events of thanos getting the gauntlet and warping reality that that opens the door for whoever dies to come back
2: that's true that's yeah
1: yeah, if this movie ends with a death i'm not necessarily going to be convinced it's any more permanent than a comic book death right you know i mean uh, eventually they're gonna have to recast i guess i'm thinking Downey's probably done after the infinity gauntlet because at that point he's gonna be like 57 years old you know he's gonna he's gonna probably be you know i mean he's he's fairly youthful looking for his age but i, yeah. I don't know how much longer he's gonna be able to hold quite that much right i mean same thing that's happening with you jackman i think they said uh he's, he's gonna do uh gonna be. I think he's gonna have a part in this next X Men movie, but a small one. And then they're gonna do Old Man Logan, and then he's supposed to be done.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, in his particular case, I, I'm, I'm good with that. I mean, I have not, you no, know, don't get me wrong, I have absolutely nothing against uh, Hugh Jackman or, or any of that. Um, as a matter of fact, you know, his portrayal of Wolverine in, uh, in X Two was, was one of the things I, I credit very. Uh, very heavily with me becoming uh, an an X-Men fan, at least of the the cinematic X-Men. I'm still not real crazy on the comic book X-Men, but I like the cinematic X-Men quite a bit. But, you know, I didn't miss Wolverine at all with First Class. As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the, the real strengths of that movie was that they were actually able to craft... Uh, what I consider a great X-Men movie and they didn't have to use that crutch you know yeah, that without
1: without him it became more of an ensemble cast exactly well, i don't, I don't yeah.
2: think
3: that's necessarily because wolverine's missing i think it's because brian singer's missing in that movie i kind of i agree, agree with, I agree that, with that yeah I will, I i'm will not definitely. a brian
2: singer fan yeah i will agree with that too because uh you know i I'm, I'm not don't get me wrong i'm not a brian singer basher either i'm i'm I, i'm kind of somewhere in the middle i'm not really a fan and i you know i don't you know it, it's i I'm almost opinionless but um, I did see what a lot of people were talking about because once you have First Class and, and how well I felt like that movie really, really worked and then you get Singer back for the next one for Days of Future Past, I, then I could kind of see what everybody was talking about because as much as I enjoy that movie, I did feel like it it, it, was, a, it was a pretty big step down from the high that, uh, that First Class left me with. And of course, a lot of that had to do with you know, here we are right back to Wolverine being the center of attention again. And that Mm -hmm. that kind of bugged me. I I kind of liked what they had going uh, with First Class, and and I wish that they could have somehow been able to tell that story without, you know, going back to the Wolverine crutch again. So I'm just, you know, if he he has one last hurrah and goes out on a high note, you know, more power to him. But I'm I'm kind of ready for Wolverine-less... X universe at, at this point I just I feel like you know his his story's kind of been told at this point give, give some of the other people a, you know give them the spotlight for a while
1: even when he's done don't be surprised if it's recast and he becomes the focus again though because just in general he's the most popular character so right. I don't think they can just accept oh he's gone that's it right so you'll be seeing at some point you'll be seeing a new actor in that role anyway this is not a shameless, obligatory movie episode. <laughs> this is a just a regular run-of-the-mill, going back to the bins, and I have a book.
3: Kyle, <laughs> you brought a book, right? I did bring a book.
1: Scott, you have a book? I have a book. All right. We're going to have four books, Bill. Uh,
0: um, oh. Well... Since we had a third guest, I mean, you know, uh, I mean, uh, uh, another no, I, I I got nothing. You got nothing. Nothing. I got nothing. I got nothing.
1: Well, got I'm, else I'm, to honored go. <laughs> I'm honored,
3: Bill. I'm honored, Bill. I don't feel like I would have got the, the true back to the Ben's guest experience if you would have brought a book. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I didn't want to outshine our guest.
1: I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to double up your Bill experience because not only do you get to have bookless Bill, but I didn't have a chance to write a synopsis for my Books, so you're gonna almost you're gonna have the rambling synopsis even without Bill having a book.
3: All right, it's, it's the like best the best of both worlds.
1: Yeah, you're getting it all. So, but uh, I guess the way was set up. You know what? I always forget to say this. Kyle, you're the guest. Would you like to go first, or would you like to go later? Sure, I can go first. Damn, go first. okay. <laughs> what book you got first, Kyle?
3: I have Daredevil number 62 That's according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, went on sale January 13th, 1970. Want me to dive right into this? Yeah. Jump right. ahead. It was written by Rascally Roy Thomas, penciled by Mean Gene Colon, inked by Sid the Kid Shores, and lettered by RD, Don't Call Me Farty Simon. <laughs> <laughs> the cover was penciled by the legendary Marie Severin with inks by Sid Shores. The story is titled Quoth the Nighthawk Nevermore, which, of course, is a riff on Edgar Allan Poe's poem, The Raven. Obviously, uh, Roy Thomas loves using uh, literary quotes, as Scott, I'm sure, got tired of when he was uh, reviewing All Star Squadron. Oh,
2: good Lord, yes.
3: (laughs) Uh, And I should mention that this uh, story is reprinted in Giant Sized Avengers number five from 1975, as well as the Essential Daredevil volume three trade paperback. The story opens on a dark New York night with Daredevil trying to thwart the getaway of two crooks that just held up the box office of a movie theater. So he chases them through a couple blocks of the city when all of a sudden, Nighthawk bursts on the scene and quickly captures the crooks and takes all the credit, while Daredevil fights off a mysterious dizzy spell. Away from the crowd, Nighthawk then lets the two criminals go and laughs all the way back to his mansion about the fun he had upstaging Daredevil and reveals that he poked Daredevil with a poisonous needle, which caused Matt Murdock's dizziness. In his mansion, Nighthawk recounts how a formula from a book on alchemy gave him his powers and how he was once recruited by the Grandmaster to fight the Avengers, as seen in Avengers number 69 and 70. Meanwhile, Matt Murdock mulls the situation and is depressed to see that the papers have turned on him so quickly after being just upstaged once by Nighthawk. He and Karen Page then have some subplotty romance stuff that culminates in them making out. Later that night, Nighthawk once again upstages Daredevil and gains the public adoration. This is the key to his plan, to gain the notoriety of the public that will someday lead to a prominent political career where his dreams of true power can be realized. However, Daredevil is suspicious of this new hero and is sure that he's the one that drugged him earlier. So he lays low for a few nights and then as a criminal in disguise, manages to trick Nighthawk into boasting how he's been staging the crimes to discredit Daredevil and also reap benefits from crime at the same time. Daredevil catches all this on a recorder, which he then broadcasts to the people on the street below. With his cover dashed, Daredevil takes off after Nighthawk, and this leads to a fight between the two of them that heads to the New York subway, where Nighthawk manages to escape by jumping between an oncoming subway train to make his escape, vowing to one day get revenge on Daredevil. The end.
1: You know, you wonder, when you look at that last panel, if when Colin drew it, if he if he wanted it to be that Nighthawk actually got killed by the train. Yeah, and that that you know Roy Thomas just wrote the you know the the you know script a little different from that. But you know just glancing at it, it looked It does. Like that he
2: It looks yeah. like he got nailed by the train. Yeah, it totally does.
1: The art in this is beautiful.
2: Mhm.
1: Yes, it
3: is. Did anybody uh, read it from the essential? No. no. I, I'd just be curious uh, how much crisper. The art would be in that essential, just with the, the black and white and no colors, because then I imagine there there's a lot of scenes where Daredevil's kind of phasing out of the shadows there, and I imagine that and black and white's just gonna look amazing.
1: This this is one where it's got the more uh, subtle color palette, like you know, it's it's not bright colors for the most part.
3: And See, I, I can find my I have the. I first read this story in the um, giant size defenders number five uh-huh. and I went to pull that out and I could not find it. So I went to both comic book shops in the area and dug through the back issues and looked for, hoping they had the essential and neither one of them did. So then I ended up buying this off the uh, Marvel app for two bucks. And so it's recolored on there and oh, okay. at that on a phone screen, it's pretty bright colors. So uh-huh. yeah, I, mean, I didn't unfortunately the get any of that subtly
1: colors, but they all seem to be a little subdued and it seems to fit the story. I mean, Gene Cohen's art, Works better with more subdued colors anyway.
3: Yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely.
1: But, I mean, the story's kind of dopey, but the art is beautiful. I'm giving away my, my final thoughts on it already. But, uh, I I don't really understand how they got the
0: movie Nighthawks out of this.
2: <laughs> Sylvester Stallone's
0: not in here. Wolf, Billy T. Williams. Billy D. Williams, none of them got Lindsay it.
1: Wagner. Yeah. I. Oh, Lindsay Wagner is Karen Page. Billy D. Yeah. Williams is Daredevil. Rutger How Billy D. Williams is Daredevil? Wouldn't it be Turk? Oh, a Turk's not in here. No, he's going to. Billy D. Williams has to be the coolest character in the book. Because mm. he's Billy So what? Williams. So
0: Esther Stallone is foggy? At best. Hey, Matt, what are you going to do? <laughs>
1: <laughs> you know, they have. The dialogue did save the one one real silly thing in here that I don't know if Gene Cohen had uh, planned on. But the Daredevil with the plastic rubber mask over his regular
3: mask. Oh, I oh, love I that. I absolutely love that. That's just such a great Bronze Age trope that I assume uh, he must have got his mask from the same store that Batman buys his uh, Matches Malone mask. From. Daredevil,
1: yes. Batman... Daredevil's old man Smithers. But he did not But he did throw in there. Anybody would have seen through my disguise now, Nighthawk. Anybody but a megalomaniac who thinks of nobody but himself. So he's, he's saying right out that the, the mask was shit.
3: <laughs> well, he had a fedora on. It was dark. It's the middle of the night.
1: When he pulls the mask off, apparently the sunglasses are part of the rubber mask.
3: <laughs> <laughs> I wonder what that uh, mask is would do uh, if it impedes any uh, daredevil's kind of ultra senses in that at all.
1: You would think, if anything, you would Maybe think it really hair. hurt his sense of smell because those things always have that that strong latex smell to them. That solvent smell, yeah. Well, his his,
0: his own mask already kind of covers up his ears already. So, I don't know.
3: Obviously, uh, his senses are super heightened as he's Even able to... Even through latex. He's able to... Uh, just run his hands across the, the newsprint to read the headline about how uh, everybody hates Daredevil now after Nighthawk upstages him that one time on the rooftop.
1: I do that. You, you can't read a paper by running your fingers across it? No. It's sad. You could do that
0: because when newspapers came out when you were a kid, they were all in stone. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, that's nice. But... <laughs>
1: I'm going to buy the uh, the decal sheet from in here.
2: Yeah, I was looking at that. These Some of these old ads where they show uh, like posters and things for sale, I, I go immediately to eBay and start hunting for these things, and I never see them, which makes me wonder, were they ever real? Did they really sell some hmm. of this stuff that they advertised? Because I never see them. Because this, this song... cap poster here says two feet by three feet, jumbo poster, this is of a cover from some issue account, I can't remember which issue it is.
1: Scott, this is forty six years ago. Who do you think is gonna be selling that poster on eBay?
2: <laughs> Chris Honeywell. <laughs> you would think that there'd be somebody out there that would still have, you know
1: I doubt product there's product. a lot of them around.
2: I don't know, but the thing is I never see them. You know what I mean? There's that there's that one of Spider Man crouching on the stairs like he's in a haunted house or something and he's shooting his web out. You know the one I mean? I've no, never no, no. seen that one in real life. Oh, that, that was all over the place in these old 70s. I'm sure, I'm sure if you
1: point it out to me, I'm going to say, oh, yeah, of course. But right. that I don't remember
3: it. What well, was the top uh, on this, Kyle? Did it, did it say on... It was uh, Marie Severin and then uh, Sid Shores, Inkter.
2: One of my I'll... favorite... I mean, I love the art in this issue. I mean, top to bottom, the art is fantastic. Uh, but one of my favorite sequences in the entire issue is when Nighthawk essentially goes back to Wayne Manor and he's driving You know what is essentially, I guess this must be the Nighthawk mobile or something. This is on page 10. If you look at panels 2 and 3, that's a hot wheel. That's a hot wheel that I had when I was a kid. <laughs> do you see do you see it there? It's, yeah. It's, it's the one I, I'll, I'll try to paint kind of a, a mental picture for, for viewers. And you have to be a, like a child of the 70s or 80s to know what the hell I'm talking about but this was the hot wheel that essentially didn't have um it, it was kind of like almost like a dune buggy's kind of body but with like the the appointed front end that uh, kind of looked like a canoe or something and it had the bubble cockpit thing for the driver so it was like a single seater uh vehicle and but it was just a really pared down body and I, I know i had a hot wheel of like This i want to say it was silver if i'm not mistaken i think it was a silver hot wheel but uh, I just, I got the biggest kick out of that when I saw that on, on, you know, when I turned the page and saw that, I'm like, that, that's a hot wheel. How did they get away with that? I just thought that was really cool.
1: I get a kind of a kick out of the first picture of it with, like, like, how the hell does he fit in that thing?
2: Right. He looks sitting like
1: he's sitting behind the wheel, down. you know, like, if you move your head, you're going to bang it into the bubble. <laughs> right.
0: Uh, uh, Scott. Yeah, I just, I just looked, looked up Marvel Mania poster, Marvel poster on eBay.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Incredible Hulk Marvel Mania poster, 1970, Trimpy Art, rare, mail order only.
2: There you go. See. Would you like
0: to know how much it is? Oh, I can only imagine. Oh, I'll take a guess.
2: Uh, let's say, three hundred dollars.
0: Nope. Higher. Higher.
2: Uh, five ninety
0: nine. You are correct. Five ninety nine, ninety nine. Wow. wow. Buy it now. Wow.
2: Good luck with that. Though. How much That's money good. do you
1: have to have that you won't spend six hundred dollars on a poster? And yeah, it's in a
2: frame. frame. But I mean, you know, if it's something super rare like that.
1: Yeah, but you know what? You know how they say there's you know there's, there's some idiot who'll buy everything. Right. If you if you buy it, maybe you're the idiot. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you've used I'm up. I'm not the saying I was going to spend that kind there. of money on it. But you and you don't. I mean, you don't buy something like that to resell it, because odds right. are you're never gonna get that much money for it again.
2: Right. You're gonna find so, the
1: next idiot. So you have to buy it because you really love it, I guess. And but then, but how much money do you have to have that you could afford to spend six hundred dollars on a poster?
2: This is very true.
1: I mean, you know, there's a few things that I would buy before that, with an extra six hundred dollars laying around. A kidney.
2: Now, is this the same Nighthawk that would eventually join the Defenders?
1: Yeah.
3: Yes, it is.
2: So, he had like a change of heart or something?
1: Yeah, pretty much. Oh, okay. uh, I think it's uh, you, reformed. They explain it kind of in the Defenders issue where, uh, you know, we, we covered that one. That's where, where they, uh, the Squadron Sinister sells Earth to uh, Nebulon. And uh, they're going to they're gonna melt the polar ice caps because Nebulon's actually kind of like a slug-like creature and needs the moisture.
2: Was <laughs> I there just, for that?
3: Yeah, you were there. That was that was pre-built.
2: Man, I must have slept through that one or something. I, well, I, I
3: want to say that was right like, beginning of uh, Gerber's run, like 18, 19?
1: Uh, 13.
3: 13. 13. Oh, okay. So that's,
1: I mean, that's right it. in the, it's, the it's tail got, end
3: of the uh, Avengers Defenders War then.
1: Right after it, yeah. Yeah. Or, or I think two issues after it, but it's got the uh, it's got the Sal Buscema, uh, what's his name uh, Jansen, artwork. Yep. No. But yeah, he, he basically objects to their selling the Earth, and uh, that that ends up being what ultimately ends up having him join the Defenders.
2: Well, wasn't there a Nighthawk that was a member of, of the squadron? It was either Squadron Sinister or the Squadron Supreme. Was well, there? A- one, there was, was one that's a member of each. Yeah. yeah.
1: This is the one that was a member of the Squadron Sinister, but so he eventually Scott turns on mean, them and joins the Defenders. But he came this to live on Earth? he That's the thing that confused me, because I was pretty sure that the whole well, thing was is that two, the Grandmaster right? took them from, like, an alternate Earth. Right. But this is written as if that's not the case, that he, you know, he was just an
0: earth
3: guy, No, I, I, think, no it's I, I think there's, there's a there. note, yeah, there's a note early on in the story that says, after the Grandmaster's plans failed, he's Stayed here on Earth to pretty much do whatever he wants.
2: Ah, uh, okay.
3: And so this would just be his third appearance. So this Squadron Sinister introduced in Avengers number 69, and then the second part of that story is 70, and this would be his first appearance after that story. Right. Which was also, those were also written by Roy Thomas, so...
2: Well, I mean, I thought the story was eh. I mean, I thought it was a pretty, you know, pretty average story. It kind of read a lot like a like a Batman story of the era, to be honest with you. But uh, of course I think that, that's probably pretty yeah. intentional. The the big thing for me was definitely the art, uh, the colon art in this is absolutely fantastic. I'm going to save my comments on that for when we actually grade it. But uh, the other uh, sequence in this I wanted to draw attention to because it really struck me when I got to this in the story is page 15, that last panel, where Daredevil is dropping, literally dropping from rooftop level onto one of the bad guys, and the bad guy's kind of turning, and he's going, Hey, who and then? He goes, Daredevil! Colin does this thing where he has speed lines kind of like emanating from Daredevil as he's dropping down on the guy. And this really struck me because, for a moment, when I first turned the page, it reminded me—I smeared or something. <laughs> well, n- kinda, yeah, but uh, like intentionally so. Intentionally? What I missed? What you said?
1: That it was looked smeared.
2: Yeah, almost like smeared, but
1: well, because because the, the the colorist used pink to create kind of an afterimage of the red from his car. right,
2: mm-hmm. right. So today with with modern computerized stuff that they can do i've seen i've seen both comic companies you know marvel and dc doing this today because they can do it with computers but you know that kind of weird um blur effects that sometimes they do like when they want to like center your vision on something like say like i don't know like say like the millennium falcon is is whipping through hyperspace right and they've got that tunnel effect so they do that weird blur thing to where it it, kind of looks almost cinematic like it's really moving you know what i'm talking about Uh, it's hard to to describe it but you know it kind of like 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 uh like centers your vision you know what i mean so it's like blurry on the outside and then like zeroing in and it has almost like a like a motion effect to a still image and it's just—it's one of those things that they can do now because they can p- computerize this stuff. You know, they can use computer coloring and inking and all that. But this is just back, you know, in, in this four-color era. And here's Colin basically doing the same thing to a to a certain degree, if you know what I mean. And I, I just think it looks fantastic because it it really does create that sense of movement. I mean, this is a, a static image. Yet, when I turned to it initially, I was like, whoa, you know, because it really looks like he's he's dropping, like he's centering in on that, you know, in the center of that picture. Yeah, it, it's hard to describe, but it also
1: helps you to center your eyes on it.
2: Right, yeah, and, and you know, all the, the different tricks that are being used with both uh, the drawing itself and then the, the way it's colored. I, I think it's fantastic. I really like this. I like the, the uh, coloring throughout this whole thing. I'm often very critical of the colorist's. Uh, you know, from these old comics. But when it works, it really works. And here is, uh, who was the colorist on this issue? Did it say?
1: I'm pretty sure it did.
2: But, uh, I mean, here's a colorist that really understood what they the were column working The said it was Marie Severin. Severin. Is it Marie Severin? I'm not seeing it listed here. Um, I don't think it's... In, no, in the no I didn't say who the, oh, okay. uh,
3: the colorist was. Mm-hmm. Marie Severin did the cover. Okay, yeah, and
1: and then I credited yeah on the, on and the, the
2: e- a, Yeah, which is a shame cuz uh, it it really works well I mean between Sid Shore's inks and whoever did the colors. This is somebody that really made uh, Colin's art work the way I think Colin's art works best is when he's working with very much this uh, like film noir style. Because one of, you know, to this day, one of my absolute favorite things that uh, Colin ever did was the uh, first Nathaniel Dusk uh, miniseries that he did for DC in the 80s. Because that was a chance for him to really shine doing uh, the type of artwork that he always you know, self-professed, that he always thought he did the best. Uh, which was that film noir style, and and that's very much what this is like. You know, it's it's just really good stuff. It's street level crime fighting, and uh, I really like this. It's very reminiscent of uh, of his run, um, you know, which of course would come later, but his run on Batman. Uh, was a lot like this too, you know, dark and moody and street level, and uh, I, I love it. I think it's really, really pretty. It's good stuff. Just to
1: focus a little bit more on the on the one panel that you were talking about. Also, if you look at it, you know, if you really pay attention to it, it's a, a very uncommon angle to get the picture from looking right. down the way it is, and then to have the perspective, you know, because you, you have to have the thug look smaller so that you're in proper perspective. It, that that would be a very very difficult panel to draw, and he pulls it off really really well because, you know, not only is the perspe- does the perspective appear to be good, but despite the twisting of Daredevil's body and everything, his anatomy actually seems to be decent on it. Yeah. Which that's no that's no you know no easy trick there. Right. So you know Gene Colin you know the the one thing uh, <laughs> one of the regrets I have is that uh, he he was on Comic Geek Speak. Uh, not too long before he passed away, and he uh, he said then that you know a lot of his time was spent doing uh, commissions, and he gave his website. And I said, you know what, I got to go on the website yeah. and get a commission from this guy. And then I, you know, like shortly afterwards, heard that he died, and I thought, you know, I never did that, yeah. and I, re- I really regret that I never had a chance to do that.
2: Same thing, yeah. I had his I had his address and everything, and uh, and that was on my list of to dos, and never never did get around to it. I know I have the same regret.
1: I know he's he's not one of your big favorites, but I am very happy that I have a Herb Trimpey com- commission before he passed away.
2: Yeah, and
3: I'm jealous of that. I wish I had been, gotten a chance to get that. Because uh, mentioned earlier that uh, Sal Buscema is my definitive Hulk artist, but uh, Herb Trimpy is a, a close second. And then I love all the uh, the work he did on the G.I. Joe and Transformers Marvel series there in the, the mid '80s.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, you know, uh, hopefully he's around for a long time to come. But I, you know, I have my my Rich Buckler thing drawing, that's that's another one of my favorites.
3: Have you ever gotten a chance to meet uh, Perez? I'm sure Scott has since he's uh, from Florida. But
1: yeah, I I met Perez at the Mike Carbo uh, Manhattan convention, the Big Apple comic convention, uh, several years ago. Just just enough to shake his hand, tell him I'm a big fan, and move on because he had a big long line.
3: Oh, you weren't able to get a sketch from him? That's no, I wish. Good. I have a uh, Superman, like head sketch bust from him. It was thirty five bucks he did a couple years ago at I think it was Wizard World Chicago back in probably twenty twelve. I would
1: I would very happily pay thirty five dollars for anything oh, yeah. George Perez wants to draw for me. Yeah. So, yeah. Anybody and got any uh, other notes
3: on this
1: one? Uh, Don't
3: little rush. That's a. That, uh, that page got mentioned, uh, it, what 15, just the, the vantage points on all four panels are pretty unique. I mean, you have a different perspective each time you kind of have a camera looking down from the, into the phone booth on the first panel and then daredevil leaping across the roof and you're getting kind of like a street level shot looking up and then you get kind of a, a different angle of him dropping down on the, the rooftop and then the, the final one where he's closing in on the, the guy in the green suit, just awesome layout that it's, uh, Different vantage point each time.
1: It's one of the things about Colin is none of his artwork ever looked like, okay, here's a guy striking a pose for a poster. Right. It always looked like this is me taking a shot of somebody in action. This is you know, this this is real. This is you know, they're always moving. Nobody nobody looks static in his picture.
3: Yeah, it's and too bad, bad the next nice. book isn't gonna be that way.
1: So you, you, we, we are going to see a significant drop in the artwork. <laughs> yes,
3: we are.
2: See, so you often hear comics, especially today, you often hear them, you know, different artwork and different things referred to as cinematic. But that's really what Colin was doing. I mean, that to me, that's kind of the hallmark of his particular art style is it's fluid. Everything is in motion all the time. And it's funny that you you say that, Paul, because it's exactly the thought that I had as I'm flipping through here. Uh, again, just looking back over the R, I was at the point where it was the, the little brief romantic moment with Matt and Karen. And even that, where there's nothing going on, there's not a bad guy being fought, nobody's running or anything like that, it's just them talking. Still fluid and it's it, it's not just two posed mannequins you know it's it's real people mm-hmm. this this could very easily be stills from a movie you know and, and that's that's what i have really come to to love and appreciate and respect about uh colin czar is that it, it's always in motion because i can remember as a kid not really liking uh colon because i can remember seeing his stuff um on daredevil and i want to see there was an issue of cap when i was a kid that i remember seeing it might actually be an issue where it was cap and daredevil fighting i can't remember but anyway i remember looking at it and and it was uh, i'm pretty sure it was chris honeywell and i at the the comic book store or you know what was what was then we used to get our comics at a cigar store actually and looking at it and just being kind of put off like, ugh, you know, it just looks funny. But now I see what it was, is that what looked funny to me was was that his art was very different from a lot of other artists that were on the stands at the time because of that sense of motion and that fluidity uh, in his artwork. And so my you know, my child mind was trying to come to grips with what, what it was that I was actually looking at here. But over time, uh, you know, and now after all these years of really having a chance to to experience uh, more of his art and everything, I've just really fallen in love with it over the years. He is uh, easily one of my favorite artists now because I I really do like that sense of motion that he put into everything. I really like that. It just it, it adds to the dynamism of it.
1: Well, the, the other thing you can appreciate in it is on page twelve the the montage scene of Nighthawk.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: That's that's something that's that's kind of kind of a colon staple. You, you see that in several issues where he'll do a montage page like that, and it just it it all it all flows together very very well. Uh, and I really like the fact that he has the big shot of him, and then all the other shots are kind of the same size. Right. But he didn't center the big shot and then put everything around it. He didn't do like the the standard right. for it. He he did it his own way. He kinda has the big shot off to the top left and then on the top right and bottom going all around it is the rest of are the rest of the montage shots. And it, you know, none of them lose anything for having you know for being in the in the one picture. Uh but it's it's as I said, it's just kind of a colon staple. I've seen him do that in several books. Where, where they have the montage page, and it's it's almost like the the uh, something you know you could expect from him, like you know a Gil cane shot of somebody being punched and kind of coming towards the reader.
2: Well, on that page where you have Nighthawk and then you have Cap, and he's punching his shield. Who is that between them? Is that Namor? That's Namor. Namor. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Okay.
3: So that's uh, from that uh, Avengers 70. I think the Invaders came in on the, the back half of that issue. Oh,
2: okay. If I'm remembering I remember
3: correctly, and then it was that, Avengers Invaders in
1: seventy one. I think that's Kyle Richmond. I think he's saying that you know from the oh, that's and him training. Himself, oh. he became a much better athlete. That's why he's playing polo at the top. Mm, okay. Because it doesn't make sense. like why? Yeah, because
3: he doesn't have any right. wings, and his polo shorts and are. And then the gymnastics. Arm. He says all sports designed to, and we have polo and gymnastics and bold. So yeah, that must be him. Do you, do you think? Doing his, gymnastics in his underwear. Okay. Yeah,
1: that's how I do it.
0: Yeah, probably. I think uh, the face more is...
3: speedo choice for the colors yeah. there? They probably should have made that a different color.
0: Do you think the face looks a little off though in the montage, like the main face? This looks a Does little Does it look
1: off. off, like not not Hollywood leading man good looks? Yes, but there's something to be said for that too. Yeah,
3: I it, think it's con- it's consistent. Bill, we see him when uh, yeah. Daredevil confronts him on the rooftop then and exposes him. Briefly, when he's talking to Daredevil, he removes his mask there, and it's pretty consistent with how we see it there, so. Oh, that's true, yeah. At least yeah. it's consistently off. <laughs>
1: <laughs> or, even, even uh, I, on, or even on the page before where he's taking the formula and everything.
0: I do like the way he did the um, um, the Grandmaster. Like, he did do a full, like, usually when they reference Things like uh, just other other heroes usually you'd have like a full body shot or something, but here he's like he's only like partially seen, you know, because he says that that the grandmaster had other interests interests in you know wherever, and it's almost like you, that's conveyed in the picture that he's not
1: even fully in the picture, he's just kind of you know fading out, and he's also kind of portrayed as a cosmic entity that way too. She mm-hmm. is, yeah. Yeah, I think that that was a
3: uh, kind gives of a, bowl, me a, very,
1: a good choice by him.
3: Yeah, it gives me a very uh, kind of dread Dormammu, Steve Ditko, Dr. Strange vibe there. Just a yeah. panel on some of the energy around it. Now, Just Scott, it. you said uh, you weren't real big on uh, Colon's art early on, and I think that uh, Daredevil fighting Captain America issue, I think that was Daredevil number 43. That was probably the, the one you had looked at. What was it that uh, turned you around on him? Was it the uh, Phantom Zone series?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. That, that was
3: the turning point?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it was It was picking that up as a kid, and right out of the gate, uh, right with the first issue, which for me, the first issue was issue two. I, I missed the first issue when it was on the stands. Um, so my first issue um, of that series was number two. And arguably the best issue of the series, although I love, you know, I love the entire series, but issue two is just a fantastic issue and just falling in love with the story and, and just pouring over that art and everything. And then, uh, yeah, pretty much with, with one issue, uh, completely flip flopped me on, uh, on Gene Colin. And after that began seeking him out and even not so much of, of seeking him out was just then not avoiding him. Um, as i'd kind of been doing up to that point you know whenever i would see his artwork and coming to really appreciate it so you know by the time um nathaniel dust did come along um which i think was a couple years later um i can't remember if that was a pre-crisis or post-crisis book i really don't remember i want to say that was somewhere between 84 and 86 something like that um really looking forward to it, you know, it was being solicited, and they were showing uh, uh, samples of it in, uh, you know, whatever the fanzines were at the time, or whatever, and being really excited for it, and snapping that right up when it came out, and uh, and that, between those two, between Phantom Zone and Nathaniel Dust, that's where it was pretty much cemented at that point, plus uh, his run on Batman, because um, if memory serves, I think he kind of floated back and forth between both Batman and Detective, And, uh, I'm trying to remember if that was, see, I'm getting the timeline kind of messed up in my head. I can't remember if he was still working on Batman at the time of Phantom Zone, or if that was after, or if this was me going back and filling in back issues, because you have to remember, it's, it's funny to think about today, especially if you didn't grow up in that era, if you weren't collecting comics in that era or whatever, but pre-89, Nobody gave a shit about Batman. So, going, you know, becoming a Batman fan and then going back and and collecting back issues of Batman um in the 80s prior to say like Dark Knight Returns and especially before the uh the Tim Burton movie, it was easy, man. I mean, you could snap up Batman back issues, you know. Well, you, you know what back then loads. the thing
1: was with Batman? What's that? Back then the thing was the Joker. Issues with the Joker were more valuable.
2: Right, yep.
1: Those were the ones that were a little harder to get the back issues of.
2: Yeah. Yeah, But just getting getting a run-of-the-mill
1: Batman issue, no problem
2: at all.
3: Yeah.
1: So in in the late 80s, you
3: had DC already put out that uh, greatest Joker stories ever told. I mean, that was one of the first trade paperbacks they actually released. So the Joker was definitely more popular than Batman at the time.
2: So I was snapping up Batman back issues like crazy. So it's very possible that... While I'm thinking that: Colin was was working on Batman right around that time, it might be that I was just buying um, what was then fairly recent back issues that he had done. I, I'm just I, I'm I'm struggling to remember the exact sequence of events. I just I really don't remember now. But anyway, you know, long story short was uh, was I became a: a colon fan. Um, you know between phantom zone and nathaniel dusk and uh and really really liked his work no i you know, come to think no i'm right because he was the batman artist when the crisis hit because uh the uh oh god what was her name the the kind of like she was the pale skin very kind of sort of like vampirous type of i want to say her name was I was going to say Natalia, and that's not right, because that's Raza Gould's daughter's name. I can't remember what her name was. Nocturna?
3: I think it was that Nocturna. Sounds
2: right. That yeah. sounds right. That was right at the time when the crisis hit, because you know, I remember the red skies and all that. So, yeah, I was right. I, I was right. Colin was the, the Batman artist at that time. And, uh, and yeah, that, that helped cement my appreciation for him as well. So, yeah.
1: F- for what it's worth, my, uh, my Colin appreciation came from uh, Tomb of Dracula. When I started reading that regularly, that's when I started becoming a uh, colon acolyte. Right. And uh, I, I would say I had a similar experience to you that when I was younger, I, I I'm pretty sure the art was too sophisticated for me. It, it's right. you know it's not, not not even a matter of too dark or anything. I think I just didn't appreciate like you say the the, the fluidity of it, the, the people in motion and everything, and. It made it actually, I guess, to my less sophisticated mind at that time, it made it more difficult to read the story and follow along.
2: Right. Yeah. Yeah. I I totally can get that. Yeah. But then as I got
1: a little bit older and I started to appreciate it, I was thinking, hell, yeah, this this is art that's complementing the story. It's 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 giving you more. It's it's you know, it's it's not the type of art that you look at it and you can just not have to read the words at all, which I guess is why it made it more difficult as a young person. You know, you want the stuff where you have to read as little as possible. Uh, But it wasn't that it was bad storytelling at all. It's just it it worked with the storytelling. So you needed both. I I don't know if I'm articulating it in a reasonable way here.
2: No, I, I get what you're saying.
1: But but I think, you know, it calls for a more sophisticated reading style. You know, it it isn't that simplistic Silver Age thing. And if and if you see Gene Colan's art with Marvel back when uh, when he went under his assumed name, I don't even remember what it was off the top of my head. uh, When he was doing Iron Man and he was doing you know kind of the house style at the time, which was almost Don Heck looking. There's there's a point in Tales of Suspense where you go from one issue to the next, and it goes he goes from kind of just doing the house style, which is nothing special at all, to going into his own style and starting to draw Iron Man that way. And what a difference. It's just phenomenal when yeah. you see it.
2: Yeah. I think the issue I was thinking of before Kyle is, uh, is Daredevil 155, where uh, it was a bunch of heroes. And those, those when I was first getting into comics, those type of stories uh, were the ones that would often jump out to me. Where uh, where it would be a lot of you know a lot of characters or a lot of superheroes all in one issue. Although I don't know, I'm looking at the cover here and it's Colin, but the inter- no, that can't be it because that's Frank Robbins on the interior. Damn, I'll have to figure. You're not going to mix the two of them up. No, no, definitely not. <laughs> yeah, but no. on the cover, uh, it's. I, I think
3: it was probably that Daredevil forty three that probably would have been. Uh, so let's see, this was sixty. So it would have been. Less than two years before that, so it would have been like 1968-ish. Maybe you would have came across. No, nah. I was from I was
2: born in '68, so no, this. this that wouldn't have been the one. On whatever, the whatever it was, it was in, uh, had to be an in the, issue
3: of actual cap. Though.
2: Yeah, it might. Yeah, maybe it was cap because whatever whatever it was had to be in the '80s because that's when I was really, um, you know, going to the. The corner market for comics and stuff like that, but yeah, I mean, whatever it was, I just I, I it would be interesting to talk to to Honeywell about this sometime and see if he remembers this. But I do distinctly remember whatever the comic was, picking it up off the stands and just the reaction of being, Ugh, you know, I just don't like this art. And I, I think uh, Paul really, you know, really hit the nail on the head. I think it was just a, a lack of of appreciation it was it was having no context for that style of art it was just so very different and you know that was that was Cullen's style that's how he drew and his style is is very uh, different from everyone else especially of his era uh, when he was doing this stuff and nobody else was really drawing like him and so you know being used to whatever it was i was looking at which was um you know a lot of dc stuff you know a lot of you know kurt swan superman and you know whatever was out you know for dc at the time and then suddenly seeing colon on uh daredevil you know with with this particular style it was just you know it, it was just something where i i couldn't really place it mentally in any sort of context it just kind of struck me as ooh, this is whoa different weird you know different bad and, uh, and now I, I don't feel that way at all, so I don't know, it's, it's, it's funny how uh, your, your tastes and your styles change and, and mature and that sort of thing, but uh, for the better, because I, I really appreciate his stuff now.
1: Yeah, I, w- I would say when it comes to comic book art, my appreciation is for the better, because things that there's a lot of things that's really high quality that I didn't appreciate that I do now. And stuff that is of a lower quality, I don't turn my nose up to it now and say, oh, this sucks. Usually, even the stuff that's of lower quality, I still have a nostalgic feel for it. So I still appreciate that, too. Right. So so it's almost like as my tastes got more sophisticated, it just lets me like more things. Right. So, So I'm good with that.
2: I either didn't know or was too embarrassed to, to buy it off the stands at the time, but damn, do I wish I could go back in time and have been buying the uh, his run on Wonder Woman off the stands because that stuff is hard as hell to find on the cheap these days.
3: But yeah, Bronze Age Wonder Woman is damn near impossible to find. Like, I think, think so. Run, run, Yeah, I, I mean, it was well below cancellation numbers. They just yeah. couldn't cancel the title or the rights reverted back to the marston family
2: yeah but uh he uh he had a, a pretty substantial run on wonder woman um starting just before issue 300 and then running for uh, a handful of issues after 300 that Would that have been just... when
3: she was in the world war ii the they were essentially the earth two wonder woman stories
2: no no this is after that um this is when she uh, adopted the, the new Boustier with the with the more stylized WW on it and she okay. went from having the bird one um,
3: okay.
2: to, to the one I don't know if she still wears that today in the comics or not but it was the more modern one and uh, I have a, uh, I have a handful of those issues but I've been struggling for years to fill them all in but yeah the, the back issue prices on that are just friggin ridiculous. But uh, I'd really like to have them just because I really love the art the The stories are okay. I can't remember who took over as the as the writer they' there I want to say it might have been Roy Thomas I forget but the story you know they were okay, but it's really it's it's his art that uh, that you know makes them uh, appealing to me and where I want to own them but yeah they've just they've been tough to chase down over the years all
1: right I think, I think it's time to rate, to rate this, this one. one
2: sure. All right.
3: Kyle, it's
1: your book,
3: so... All right. first uh, The art, I got to go with a straight-up A. It hits all the right buttons for me. It's kind of just classic Marvel Bronze Age, which just came out uh, 17 years before I was born, but I actually read this one at a, a fairly young age, cur- courtesy of the uh, Giant Size Defenders number 5 uh, reprinting. I inherited those from uh, my dad's brothers and uh, really fell in love with the, the Marvel comics from this era. and This was always one of my favorites. Definitely... Uh, blew the uh, Don Heck artwork out of the uh, front half of the book completely <laughs> out of the water uh, and so uh, straight up a I, I don't see a bad panel on this one uh, as we talked about colon draws a, a very dynamic daredevil and uh, it really the art really flows nicely panel to panel and page to page so, straight up a cover uh, I'd have to go with a B uh, there's nothing wrong with it it's well rendered uh, Severn is definitely kind of, one of the classic silver and early bronze age marble artists and cover artists. So it has that nice Marvel house style, but uh, I'm a, I'm a fairly big Nighthawk and Daredevil fan, but if they weren't the characters on this cover, I don't think that the, the cover would necessarily reach out and grab me and make me want to buy it uh, story. I'm probably going to have to go with a B or B plus. It's a really enjoyable story. Uh, it's a nice little one done. Roy Thomas can uh, obviously at times get pretty verbose. That's actually pretty uh, dialed down here. It's a pretty precise, fairly short read for a Roy Thomas book. So it's kind of a well-paced. I guess my one uh, nitpick about the writing would be that none of the characters really have any sort of distinct voice. The lines that are coming out of Daredevil and the lines that are coming out of Nighthawk when they kind of quip back and forth while they're fighting, it's either character could be saying those, and essentially those are all just Spider-Man lines at this time. Uh, obviously, uh, J. David Weeder could be able to verify this, but I don't think... Uh, Daredevil had really found his legs as far as a, a writing standpoint. He was still kind of spider man light or uh, blind Spider-Man, so he still kind of did some of that back-and-forth quipping. <laughs> so uh, I guess, yeah, story, B, B+, plus, whatever. Overall, I'd say B-plus for the book.
1: All right, who's next? I guess I am.
3: Uh... Did we lose Bill? What's that? Did we lose Bill? No, 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 no
0: I'm
1: here.
3: Bill, Let's wake just... up! He's quiet, though. Still right. looking at those lesbian in the desert photos. <laughs> <laughs> All
1: right. So on the cover, it's kind of a different cover. It's It's, it's got a, a different perspective to it. It's I, I'm not totally thrilled with the way Daredevil is drawn, although I am a Marie Severn fan. I like the way Nighthawk is drawn very much. But the odd composition of it I find somewhat compelling. Uh I don't know. I I, I would say I'm going to just give it a straight up B on the cover. It's it, it there's definitely spots where it could be a little bit better. I think the light blue color palette probably takes away from it a little bit. If there had been a darker background, I think it would be more of a it, it would just jump out at you a little bit more, make it pop a little bit. But, you know, a B. It's not it's not bad at all. It just could be a little better. The interior art, I think we've gushed nonstop pretty much since we started talking about the book. It's it's I'm just not sure if it's an A or an A+. plus. Uh, I'm going to say an A. Not quite an A+, plus, but really, really good. Uh, I, I would love to own a page of this book. Uh, the story, I think, you know, at this point, Marvel is kind of right on the cusp of going from the Silver Age to the Bronze Age. And this just strikes me as an exceptionally Silver Age story. The new hero comes in town and all of a sudden everybody rejects. The established hero in favor of the new guy who's been around for a day, Uh, and and then you know it turns out that the new hero has bad motives and all of that. It's just it it strikes me as very unimaginative. So I'm going to say C minus on the story. I'm just not thrilled with it at all. But overall, on the strength of the art, this book gets a B plus.
2: Sweet, Bill.
1: Um,
0: hmm. cover wise, yeah, you've got you know, sad daredevil, sad daredevil walking away. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is with that? Man, that guy right next to uh, right next to Nighthawk, the guy on, on the left, man, he really he's really like taking it to Daredevil. Look at that! You get H-Dale. the hell out of here!
1: Hit the road! <laughs> hit the bricks!
0: DD. <laughs> oh, I mean, I think just for that guy alone, I I'm, I'm going to bump it up like ha- half a grade. So, um, I mean, because really this is like about a C cover, but I I, I think I'd give it a C plus. Uh, just just for the guy with the finger.
2: <laughs> um the interior art what is that guy with the camera taking a picture what? of
0: where's there uh maybe he's trying to look up the girl behind daredevil's dress <laughs> that we can't see that's blown over well i mean I
2: oh that i didn't even notice that perv with the camera no i'm talking about the guy in the <laughs> green right there that's oh it's a <laughs> nighthawk He's taking yeah, a picture, picture of Nighthouse, Nighthouse Junk, yeah.
1: junk. Yeah, look at the dude with the number twelve. Because either he's a child or he's a uh, a midget. A, well, that's what term are we supposed midget. to use for short people now? I don't midget. Short people. But uh, he, he's got it in his hand. He's got the piece of paper and a pen. He
3: wants to get his autograph. Thank <laughs> you. I think he's a scrapper from the New Legion.
4: <laughs> did you say? Did you say sign? Please sign. Yes. <laughs> yes <I did. laughs> It's, that would be a shout Chris, out to It's Chris and Tim from Switch. Exactly. That'd be a
2: shout out to Star Wars the character. <laughs> sign please sign. <laughs> oh, I hope Matt listens to this episode. <laughs>
1: uh. I'm sure he'll let us know if he does.
0: That was funny. I, I have to laugh because there's an expense check from work. Oh wait, Paul, this would be our this would be our time. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for real life with Dr. Bill Roberts. So my wife left an expense check on the desk and she put on a post it sign please. <laughs> so it's her first first time I saw it I just busted out laughing cuz that was the first thing I thought of was uh, was Chris and Tim going sign please sign for with their posters o- over at Star Wars and character. So, so so yeah that's that that could be little Timmy down there gaping up at uh at Nighthawk, winning his signature. <laughs> and that's the end of uh, real life.
2: <laughs> Back to the greeting. Good. That was a so, beautiful story. <laughs> so, C-plus, see, see it, it touched cover. me deeply. Please make sure that never happens again.
3: <laughs> I gotta uh, say, that uh, real life with Dr. Bill just doesn't carry the same weight without uh, the music. So,
1: well, um, when, when wow. people hear it, it will have the music. Yes, yes. Um
0: I guess it's a credit to Gene Collins' art that we can even he can add some color in life even to the mundane process on page 4 of the lady with the purple hat getting her change back from the ticket moment because <laughs> that's just oh so exciting right there but um I think for the it, it I've I like Gene colon, uh, but I've seen better Gene colon. so for me I'm going to give this an A minus I know ooh an A minus uh, the story oh, you itself did bill yeah the story itself yeah, is a little goofy so I think this the the story for me is going to be a C so I guess that I, uh, comes out to a B a B book the B B book for DD
2: um TD. What's really funny about this, and I can't tell you why, because I I looked up the credits on this when I got to the cover of it because I was so curious who did the cover. And nobody that I thought was involved with the cover was involved with it. So I don't know why it gives me such a, a vibe of this, but it reminds me so much of Supergirl covers... Um, that Murphy Anderson did for Adventure Comics. I don't know why, but there's one where she's in a stadium being booed, and there's, uh, everybody in the stands is like throwing shit at her, and she's crying. And that's what this cover reminds me of, and I couldn't tell you why. I think it has something to do with the guy pointing his finger, the one that Paul pointed out. So I don't, I, or Bill pointed. Out, I'm sorry. Um, so I don't know why it reminds me of that, but it just does. But, but it's just it's a hysterical cover between the way. Nighthawk is being so pompous, and Dee Dee's walking away all dejected and everything. And it's not a very good cover. I was tempted to really rate it low, but then I noticed that the guy right next to Daredevil that's fist-pumping right there really looks like Ronnie Reagan. So mm-hmm. you know, if you manage to put Ronnie <laughs> Reagan on the cover of anything, it's going to automatically bump it up, in my opinion. So I'm going to give it a B. It's It's a fun cover. It's... I don't know that it necessarily would have made me pick it up and buy it, but it it is fun. So, Plus it's... Uh, I don't know, I'm going to skip that joke because that's just wrong. <laughs> Moving <laughs> along here. <laughs> you probably know what I was going to say. Um, right from the moment that I cracked this one open, and uh, especially when I got to page two, I knew I was going to love this right out of the gate because that, pa- that second page in this... Is just beautiful. I mean, it almost looks like a like a seventies, you know, like a like a seventies uh, like chank, you know, exploitation movie or something. There's just something about the art and the and the coloring and everything on that second page that just made me instantly. It took me back to. You know, the 70s and the kind of movies and TV shows my dad used to like, to like to watch and everything. And, you know, the car speeding down the street. I was just like, I'm going to have so much fun with this. And I did. Uh, I liked, I love the mention of Orange Julius uh, between the two guys as they're driving. I don't know if anybody remembers oh, Orange Julius. Stans, but I used to Sorry. love those places. Mm. So I, I just got a kick out of this. And then, you know, all the little – I know they weren't intended to be Easter eggs at this time. But now, you know, with this book being what? 40 something years old. 46. 46 years old. Now they play like Easter eggs. So, like, when they're going to the movies, I actually, you know, God bless the internet. You know, I actually went to Google to figure out, okay, what movie is this that Daredevil was talking about? So, you know, there was like the little keys on the marquee here. You could see where it said Alan Arkin. And it looked like it said Poppy, and I'm like, I never heard of that. So I looked it up. I just put in uh, Alan Arkin, 1969, and sure enough, that was the movie. It was It was called Poppy. I have no idea what the hell that hmm. is. And on the very last it's, page. It's the movie where you had the squinky way. eye. <laughs> what squinky eye? And um, on the on the last, I think it was the last page, I'm trying to flip back to it. Um, yeah, that very last page before they go down into the the subway, uh, they both swing by another movie marquee. Krakatoa,
1: Krakatoa East Krakatoa of Java. Krakatoa
2: East of Java. Yeah. And I looked that one up. I'm like, oh, I remember but... that. Yeah. It, it was ringing a bell, but all you can see in the actual picture, because, you know, the, the, you know, for one thing, not all the words are in the panel, but also word balloons and other things are over top of some of the, the letters, all I could really make out was "of Java," and I—it was bugging me. I'm like, "Oh, I, I should know the name of this movie. I just can't think of it." So I looked it up, and sure enough, you know, you put in "of Java," in quotes, 1969 on on Google, and immediately that's what comes up: Krakatoa, East of Java. So. I, you know, that, Everybody that had sort a of huge
1: thing. nerd nerdgasm over that when it came out because the big thing was to know that Krakatoa is actually located west of Java and the movie was wrong.
2: <laughs> I, 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 is that I'm right? Not making that up. That is oh, that's funny.
1: That was a big thing at the time, people talking about that.
2: That's funny. But no, I I I did I got a I got a kick out of it. Um art, I'm gonna give the artist straight up A. Um, like Bill, I've seen better Gene Colon art, but This is pretty damn good gene colon art, so I'm going to give it a straight-up A. Uh, Definitely a little bit of room for improvement, but uh, again, props to the colorist, whoever the colorist was. I I really think the color worked um, to the betterment of this particular uh, chapter. And the story, yes, it's simplistic. Yes, it's very silver agey. It's very kind of standard, but I still got a kick out of it, so story, I'll go go a, a c plus it's a better than average story and uh so overall i guess that averages out to uh, i'll say a, a a b plus i thought it was a good good fun read i got a kick out of it
3: i agree well we all took different routes there but i think we all arrived with about the same score
1: yeah pretty much <laughs> now let's see we're running kind of long there's no question we're not doing three books today do we have time to even do two?
2: Well, mine is really super short because it's just one story out of this issue. Um, I really wanted to talk... Who was, who was bringing the other... Was it you, Paul? That's me. Bring the, and, I,
1: and if I don't bring it today, you know I will bring it another the, day. The thing Not,
2: with that one is that that one's going to generate, at least I suspect anyway, some serious conversation, um, both of its historical... Relevance and importance, but also um also the fact about that it,
0: Starman is Goose and Black Canary on on, <laughs> on, the,
2: on the cover. Well, just the fact if I don't of, cover it today. You don't want to give away what it is. I'm just well. That know, could be, be, be any, any book. book. I mean, I don't have to be up early, so it's it's entirely up to everybody else. I I can't make the call because I'm well,
1: i I do have to be up early. I know you do. <laughs> uh, I, I do I, too. I do. We're coming up on two hours of recording. I know about a half an hour of it's just going to be chopped off, but why don't we do yours because it's a short one and we probably won't, you know, we won't go too much longer this way. And then okay. I'll save mine for next time.
2: All right, all right. Before I get into mine, a little bit of backstory here. No, 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 no time for backstory. Little just bit of backstory. Just a no, little we're just bit of backstory. Now. Just a little well, bit. I got otherwise. a
0: question.
1: What? I got a question. Just.
0: This- uh, I won't give away what you're doing yet, but was this story told somewhere else? Like how that object gets in the cave? I'm gonna was say Was that story told?
2: Yes, but I don't know that for sure. Okay. But I wanna say yes. Um but we we can talk about that when we get into it. Because okay. I had the same I had the same reaction. I was like, I think I've read this story before. So before I give away what the what the book actually is. Here's how awesome our listeners are, right? So uh, a couple of episodes back, uh, I couldn't tell you what exact episode it was, but, uh, but recently, very recently, uh, we had an episode go up where I mentioned, and I, I would consider the, the mention of this, it was just a very offhand comment that I had made about a particular book that I have been chasing for a while, And I gave the reasons why I was chasing the book and all that, and that I just hadn't been able to score one on the cheap and everything. And lo and behold, one of our listeners comes through and actually not only gives me the comic, here's the whole setup. So as you may or may not know, uh, I actually work at Walt Disney World. And I in in one of the different... (laughs) Uh, positions that I work, um, I work in one of the resorts there. I work at a Pop Century Resort uh, when I'm not teaching or when I'm not doing some of the other positions. And this particular listener is actually our good friend Chris Franklin, who together who has been with on show, w-
1: w- I'm sorry, who has been on the show.
2: Uh-huh. Uh, together with his wife um, Cindy, they do the Supermates podcast. And so they were on vacation at Walt Disney World, and Chris contacted me. uh, I think it was a couple of days before they were they were coming down, and was like, "Hey, you know, we're going to be coming on vacation, and you know, is there any chance that we might be able to meet up and all this sort of thing?" So uh, that night, uh, he he messaged me, and he's like, uh, "Hey, you know, let me know. You know, we're here now. We're on property and everything. And uh, you know, let me know if there's a chance that we might be able to get together." And through just messaging back and forth, uh, I realized, you know, that they were at uh, what used to be down uh, downtown Disney. Now they're calling it Disney Springs. It's, it's kind of in a state of flux becoming Disney Springs. They were there, and I mess- you know, messaged them back. Well, you know, I'm at work and everything, so you know, maybe there's a chance we could get together after work, you know, depending on how late you guys are going to be staying up and that sort of thing. Anyway, long story short, about midway through my shift... Uh, somebody comes back and gets me, and they're like, uh, "Yeah, you have someone uh, out at the front desk to see you." So I go out there, and they had come back from Disney Springs, and here was Chris at the front desk looking for me. So I actually got to go out, and uh, we got to meet, you know, face to face and shake hands and shoot the breeze just a little bit. Um, I, I unfortunately I couldn't spend as much time with him as I wanted to because I, you know, I was on the clock and working and everything. Um, but he had stopped by to see me and everything but specifically to bring me this book and i was just so touched by that that you know this offhand comment that i had made and here he was coming through he, he recognized the the issue that i was talking about and r- remembered that he had a spare copy of it in his own collection so he brought me his spare copy and i just thought that that was really really cool i thought that was that was pretty awesome and uh, he was a really nice guy, and, uh, and I wish we'd gotten to ch- spend a little bit more time together. But of course, you know, they're always—you know—they were on their vacation, so I'm always a little bit leery about, you know, I, I don't ever want to cut into anybody's vacation time or anything like that. But it was really—I I was just really touched that he made the time to, you know, to stop by the desk to see me and all that, and uh, and to bring me this gift. I thought that was really super cool of him. So. Uh, the specific issue that uh, I'm going to be covering this time, now, I'm just covering one story out of here. And the reason I'm covering uh, the story that I'm covering in here is because that's the story that's cover featured. So this is the Batman Chronicles. This uh, It's cover dated as Spring 97. I did not look it up on Mike's Amazing World to see exactly when it was on sale. Sorry, I'm being lazy about that. Um, But it is cover dated spring 97. This is issue 8. Original cover price was $2.95. And the cover on this, this is the whole reason I wanted to own this issue. Because for one, the cover is really cool. It's uh, a Walt Simonson cover where Batman is fighting for his life. He is actually in the jaws of a Tyrannosaurus Rex. And it looks like he's about to get chomped good. And it's just a really beautiful um, Walt Simonson cover. This particular issue, this cover, let me, let me phrase this a different way. Did you know you can actually find Batman at Walt Disney World? I bet you didn't know that. Because, of course, Disney doesn't own Batman, right? So, that, this issue is actually on display... In Chester and Hester's Dynorama, which is a gift shop store, which just calling it a gift shop doesn't really do it justice. That place is really super cool. It's in the Dinoland USA section of Disney's Animal Kingdom theme park at Walt Disney World. It's actually on display there because they have all these comics on display in that shop that are all uh, dinosaur themed covers. And I've been trying to collect them as part of my sub collection of what i call the comics of walt disney world all the comics that you can find displayed somewhere on walt disney world property yes i'm just that level of a of a disney nerd so i've been chasing this particular issue for a while just because i i wanted it based on this cover and as i say had not been able to uh, to track it down chris heard me talking about this and uh, and brought me the issue and i just thought that that was really super cool so Uh, needing a book to come to the show tonight i thought well this this is perfect you know this my whole owning this book now comes out of back to the bins so i thought i will go ahead and i'll bring this and i'm just covering the story in here that relates to the cover so it's it's the dinosaur story and the uh, name of this story is secrets of the bat cave dinosaur island it is written by uh, written and the art is by graham nolan uh, colors by Patricia Molville Hill uh, with letters by Albert de Guzman and starts right off with a pretty cool splash page it's pouring down rain and it looks very much like Jurassic Park you have this giant T-Rex in the background uh, that you can imagine you know if, if comics had sound would be roaring like kinda like the T-Rex at the end of the original Jurassic Park and he's kinda making almost the same pose And this T-Rex is chasing the Batman, and Batman's running through the rain, you know, this pounding rainstorm. And we see a copy of the Gotham Gazette blowing by that says, Dinosaur Island owner found dead, and uh, it says that he hung himself. And we're getting little dialogue boxes that um, are kind of like Batman's inner monologue, where he's... uh, Actually, come to think of it, I think this is from, yes, this is from Alfred's perspective... And Alfred is basically filling us in on what's going on so far. So Batman has come to investigate the death of this guy, uh, Mister Hart, who was the founder of Dinosaur Island. Batman doesn't believe for a minute that this guy killed himself, so that's why he's come to Dinosaur Island. So scattered through this entire uh, opener to this story is you see Batman essentially running from his life, fr- or running for his life from this giant dinosaur. And it's chomping trees and smashing turnstiles and all this stuff trying to get to Batman and kill him while the little boxes are kind of filling us in on what's going on. And essentially what it it seems like it comes down to is that from the time that Bruce was a kid... He had uh, a real fondness for this place, Dinosaur Island, and this guy, Mr. Hart, because he was the guy that created it. And he remembered, you know, the fond times with his with his dad going to Dinosaur Island and all this. So he's intent on solving the mystery of what happened to Hart. And he's put it together that because of creative differences, that actually it was Hart's partner this guy named chase that rubbed him out because he wanted dinosaur island to take a a different route because as gotham city has kind of turned to the dark side he wanted dinosaur island to kind of go darker too and become more of a a thrill park kind of thing and not be so kitty friendly as the park that bruce remembered from when he was a kid again scattered through all this is again batman running for his life and battling this dinosaur and we see a great sequence where he stabs out the eye of the dinosaur and then he actually tricks the dinosaur very jaws 2 style into biting into electrical cable and basically zapping itself and shorting the dinosaur out so that's how he defeats the dinosaur but the moment that's done then he has a whole new fight on his hands where these uh animatronic uh, what they're called animatronic beasts is what um, Chase calls him. Essentially, they are Disney audio animatronic cavemen. Uh, all attack Batman, and they're so lifelike that uh, you know they they fight like real men, and Batman has to fight them and take them out. But he does, and then he comes for Chase. And it, it's a pretty simple setup. What really makes it dynamic is the art. The art. Um, is really very cool because it's this weird kind of blending, kind of an amalgamation of Norm Brayfogle and like a Mike Parabek style. There's a lot of instances in this where I can really see that Mike Parabek, uh, like Batman the Animated Series style of art uh, and, and again, a lot of uh, brave, fogo-looking stuff in here as well. I just, I really, really liked the art. When I when I first started reading this story, I wasn't all that crazy about the art. Uh, and then there was, uh, there's a panel, pages aren't numbered, but there's a panel after Batman defeats the cavemen, where the lightning is cracking behind him, the rain is pounding down, and you can see it like splashing off of his cape and everything, where Batman is whirling his his head and gritting his teeth and he's all kind of illuminated by the lightning strike and he just says write it off on your taxes and i just think that's a great panel it really looks like uh, something from batman the animated series which uh, i was a huge fan of so i really like that just batman fighting uh, cavemen and dinosaurs was really great but eventually he does make his way to chase and he takes chase out with one punch and then there's a great panel of him where He's kind of catching his breath, and it almost looks like maybe he was uh, wiping away a tear or something. It, it's kind of left to the reader to interpret that as you will. And at the end of it, we see Batman back in the Batcave, and he's talking with Alfred, and he's just feeling kind of down about the whole thing. That you know, this is what this childhood memory of his, Dinosaur Island, has come to, and just kind of feeling like maybe he's not really making a difference, and. Just having a moment of self-doubt so to make him feel better alfred actually goes out goes to the police auction under an assumed uh under an alias and purchases the dinosaur and it has it installed in the bat cave as a reminder to bruce you know something that he can always look at to see that he does make a difference and that's pretty much the end of the story. So it's kind of an origin story for the T Rex in the Batcave. How do
1: you explain that to the movers?
2: Yeah, that's. I would love you to know. You just bring that, this yeah. into the Batcave. Just uh,
1: don't worry about anything else. <laughs> <Wow, laughs> right. They took over the giant that, penny, you idiot. That's a
2: pretty big space you got down here. Why all them bat symbols on it? Oh. <laughs> well, you know. Alfred Alfred did work for, you know, the what was it, the French Secret Service or French Resistance or something like that. So you can assume that the once 14. the job is done, you know, he, he just pulls out the silencer and a couple of and, you know, that's it. You know, nobody's nobody's <laughs> that's talking exactly what I'm picturing. Nobody's talking after that, you know. Stand, Stand over
4: here. What?
2: That's see that crate right underneath the end, the bat where it says the end underneath the dinosaur. That's probably what's in that crate is their bodies.
1: <laughs> I I, I kind of go to the night the Batman sixty six TV sp- uh, series where he's got something in his utility belt where, like as soon as they deliver it, you just spray it on them and they forget where they were. Right. <laughs> so would, oh, maybe work.
2: he uses the kiss of forgetfulness.
1: Yeah, he is buddies with Superman. you can have Superman come over and do that for him. I'm not kissing that guy.
2: I'm not kissing that guy. (laughs) If a chick here, I'll do it. You see this big, beefy mover guy going, Whoa, 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 what the (laughs) hell are you doing? Hey, get off of me. (laughs) I know you. (laughs) What would you think of this?
0: Well, this is is my question. Like, Like, is this... I wasn't sure, was this story that that that's what I was asking or hinting at? Was this story previously
3: told in? Yes, it age? was. Okay, that's what I was wondering. So, this uh, the original Dinosaur Island goes all the way back to the Golden Age. I want to say, uh, here, let me pull it up. I I know I read it in a 100 page super spectacular reprint. Uh, Batman 256 reprinted the Golden Age story, which was from Batman number 35 from 1946. Wow. Billfinger. So in that one, uh, yeah. fairly similar premise, uh, Batman goes to like a mock big game hunt in this newly constructed dinosaur island and uh, Stephen Chase is still the, the villain in this and uh, that uh, Hart guy is still the owner of the island, but the uh, he isn't dead in that and Stephen Chase is kind of has this animatronic T-Rex running amok and then Batman deduces it and, and saves it. So uh, or where it had been told before I, I, not a one-for-one one retelling but this would have definitely been the first time it'd been retold since uh, miller's relaunch of the character with uh batman year one post crisis there
2: i failed to point it out when i was going over the um the credits on this but there was after the the credits of story art, colors and letters there was a special thanks to chuck dixon it doesn't say what for but then under that it says dedicated to Bill Finger, Dick Sprang, who I imagine are probably the guys that did the original story. I, I do Key wish art. it had cited the original story. That that would have been nice if it had said, you know, from a you know a retelling of you know such and such story from from wherever. But unfortunately, it didn't do that.
3: The the art on the original one is credited to Bob Kane. So take that. Right. Right. If you will. So mid, uh, well, the, the, the writer is credited as Bill Finger, but the, the art is credited as Bob Kane. But that'd be, what I say, 1945 or 1946 at that point. I really don't think uh, Kane was doing much, if any, uh, of the art anymore. Uh, it was probably more likely, uh, I don't know, I think that would predate uh, Dick Spring. I think that'd probably be is it Ray Burnley, Jack Burnley, maybe uh, Jerry Robinson probably working on it. I, don't know. I wonder if the, the shout-out to Dick's brain is maybe that uh, he's the first one that actually sh- drew the animatronic, kind of the, the dinosaur trophy in the Batcave itself. Oh, in maybe. the cave, yeah. That
2: makes sense. And then
3: uh, I, I assume the shout-out to Chuck Dixon is, uh, at this time Chuck Dixon still would have been writing Batman. I mean, uh, Graham Nolan was frequently his collaborator and penciler, and so uh. this is probably one of the earliest stories that Graham Nolan ever actually wrote himself so i imagine uh, Dixon kind of gave him some help structuring the story and pacing it a little bit it could it's be probably why that shout out mm. is there
2: that could be yeah i wasn't sure when I, when i first you know got to this page you know there's i mean don't get me wrong there's nothing wrong with uh, with that initial splash but at the same rate it just it, it felt very 90s to me which it is it's 97 And I just saw that and I thought, eh, you know, this is just going to be an average, you know, 90s Batman thing. But then as it went on, and and different panels and different things, especially when you get to the, uh, the third page of the story, that third panel of the third page where Batman is charging at and stabbing the dinosaur in the eye with that stick. That Batman Heart. right there looks like a Brave Fogle Batman. And that's where I kind of fell in love with this story. I'm like, damn, that's cool. That looks good. I'm sorry, what'd you say, Hell's Paul? Heart. I said, from Hills I stab it. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really liked that. It also reminded me an awful lot, and, and for all I know, this story may also be a, a, some sort of a callback or homage to. Um, that early Batman story, but if you remember um, one of the very earliest episodes of Superman the animated series, where Luthor had the animatronic T-Rex, um, yep. and th- he traps Lois and Superman in a room where there was kryptonite and was going to use the T-Rex to take out Superman. Uh, that was a you know a mechanical dinosaur that I always thought that was really cool too. These yeah, dinosaurs. they
3: even used some of that footage in the opening credits for the show.
2: Right. Yeah, that's yeah. right. But, I did get
3: the Batman animated series from this
0: too. Yeah. Right right, right when I got to the I mean, it's the same page where it says, you know, write it off your taxes. I was like, Oh wow, that you know, you know, the lightning behind him and yeah. everything.
2: That's beautiful. I don't know if uh I don't know if Graham Nolan ever did any work on that on you know, any of the comics based on the uh the animated series or not. I'd have to look that up. But that right there just it totally looks like it's from you know say like batman adventures or something like that in one of the the animated series uh, projects but that that's mm-hmm. a beautiful piece of art i really like that um there, there were a couple of different ones in here that gave me uh, a, a vibe of of other artists um the one where uh batman is actually confronting chase where chase thinks batman's dead he says, could it be? Mm-hmm. Am I free of the bat? Yes, 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 yes. Yes. And then he turns and Batman's behind him and just goes, no. No. I mean, that's a bad ass looking Batman. He's got smoke coming off of him. And thats he looks great. I love him with the gritted teeth. That just looks so good. And
0: you can hear. Uh, yeah, I'm locking up.
2: Kevin Conroy. You can, thank you. <laughs> you know why I remember that? No kidding! I'm not making this up. Swear to God! The other day um, at work, um, I had to go to a guest room to deliver something, and the guest name was Kevin Conroy, <laughs> and I was so excited. I'm like, "Oh my God! Please did, answer the did door!" Did you wet yourself? And he did, but of course it was not oh, it was the a, same. It was it, not the same Kevin Conroy.
0: Yeah, I'm Kevin Conroy. Kevin. <laughs> oh, <it> <laughs>
2: yeah, exactly. But uh, yeah, I have some research. What do you have? I'm not sure what I would have done. I, you know, I, would, have just, I would have been professional and all that, but that would, have, that would have been pretty cool. That would have been a great story, but uh, alas, not the same Kevin Conroy.
0: Right? <laughs> he would jump out and he jump on top and say, in the years to come, I want you to remember who it was that gave you this
2: <laughs> Well, you know, I was so tempted, the guy that actually did answer the door, I was so tempted to ask him, you know, how many Batman jokes he'd had to suffer over the years, but then I thought, nah, eh, for all I know, he has no clue, you know, so, I mean, Kevin Conroy is not exactly a household name, no offense, Kevin Conroy, but... You know what I mean? I mean, nerds like us may know that, but you know, does your average guy in the street know? You know, Kevin Conroy was the was the voice of Batman. So I don't know, but he should. They should, yes, but they should. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, overall, though, I really I got a kick out of the story. It's stories like this, though, that I mean, you guys illustrated it so well when we got to the end of it. Like, how the hell did Alfred get that thing into the Batcave? That's the thing with stories like this. You're supposed to walk away from it, going, "Oh, that was a cute little story," and not think about that. Because <laughs> if you think yeah. about that, that's where stories like that completely fall apart. You know, it's like, "Wait, wait, 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 wait." You know, no, so- it
1: doesn't. You just got to imagine. You know. Well, I putting, think putting a bullet in the back of the head of each of them.
2: I think that's
0: what. <laughs> I think that's what Bruce Wayne is trying to figure out because he's looking like, wait a minute, how did he get? I don't want to know.
2: Yep, exactly. Never
0: mind. Never mind. Because Al- Al- Alfred's see, he- alfred got the gun behind him going, just be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> it
1: would be that, 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 that uh, you know, those, those three last panels before they walk away. Uh, in the third one, and you can just have a little click sound effect like he's pulling back to, the, to he's cocking the gun. Yeah, I'll just walk away now, Alfred. Don't worry about it. You can keep your dinosaur here.
0: Yeah, I'll just let this one go. I was surprised uh, um, that the, although you didn't cover the first story, I did like the, uh, the penciler. I don't think I've ever seen Sal draw Batman.
2: Didn't Bat, didn't he do uh, one of the Batman Punisher team up books? I might have it, but I didn't remember it. So
0: this was
1: goes kind of like, oh, Sal
0: Buscema, Batman, nice. Right.
1: I don't recall ever seeing. I mean, he, and he may have done one of the Batman Punisher books. I don't know, but I don't recall ever noticing one that he did.
2: I, I could be wrong about that, but I I, I thought that he did. But I, again, I could be dead wrong about that
3: and yeah,
1: just just paging through that quickly it's it's pretty well drawn i
3: don't know if he uh, really had penciled that much at dc prior to this time he came on i know he inked uh ron friends quite a bit in the the superman books around this time in the late right. 90s early 2000s yeah
2: well didn't he He's, also i think he did the just imagine stanley creating superman didn't he was that yeah, was I think, that yeah. something yeah. I, I, I tried They stay typically as far got uh, as i can i
3: never read Marvel them yeah staple artists yeah uh, from the the silver and bronze age to work on those titles i think
2: yeah and the second one was a was a 2 Face story I, I hadn't read either one of these other stories yet i kind of i don't like, them a like little the two-faced bit, but... story at all. yeah it's it's different i don't like how 2 Face looks but i, I do kind of like the art itself i just don't really like the way 2 Face looks he he looks too uh to a, like um, Killer Croc or something, he looks very lizardy to me. I don't know why, but um, but yeah. So if we're ready for letter grades, have about the- All right. So the the cover is a tricky thing because I really like the cover. Um, I think it's, I think it's kind of an iconic cover. Um, in its simplicity and everything. I mean, it's Batman being chomped by a T Rex. I mean, how cool could you get? um unfortunately if you really linger over it any length of time you start to quickly realize that batman he his anatomy's a little wonky um one arm i'm pretty sure is longer than the other he's really he's either like really been working out too hard or he's retaining a lot of water or so his legs are <laughs> really fat Um, Which looks a little funny. I don't want to be overly critical because, I mean, this is Walt Simonson. I mean, he's one of the gods, you know. Look at my legs. Walt Simonson
1: is, but he's never been known for proper proportion in anatomy. This
2: is true. Yeah, this is very true. But, you know, I'm going to forgive a lot of that. I still think it's a great cover. Um, I think I would still give the cover a straight-up A- I would give it an A+, plus, except, again, uh, Batman, he just looks a little bloated to me. Um, also, I'm not crazy about the color. Um, and that's not, presumably, is not Simonson's fault. It's, you know, I would assume that it's probably a different colorist. I don't know who the colorist is, but the color scheme could just be a little prettier. Um, but still, I mean, just a fantastic cover. I really do like the cover. Um, the I'm so story, pretty,
0: I'm so pretty. Oh.
2: <laughs> the story, Um. the story proper is, I mean, it, it's short and sweet. I mean, what is this, maybe eight pages? It's short and sweet. It, it really moves along. So, you know, it, the story's told fairly well. And again, this is a retelling um, of a story. It, it works for what it is. It, you know, it moves from A to B to C. But, where the story, there was one beat in the story that didn't quite work for me, and that was the next to last page. The whole thing with uh, with Bruce's uh, moment of doubt here, I, I, it just kind of seemed to come out of left field. Like, you know, what what is this all about? Why all of a sudden, because of this particular case, now all of a sudden he he wonders you know am i doing any good and i think a lot of it had to do with you know he says himself that you know the city is full of killers alfred but uh i went after hearts you know he he's talking about you know he feels like he was allowing his personal feelings and the fact that you know this was a, a a something that had meant a lot to him as a kid so well, he went after well, this particular case as opposed to going after, you know, the Joker for the umpteenth time or, or something like that. And well, somehow you know it just rung a little hollow to me.
0: Right, because, well, well I mean, uh, duh, that's why he's Batman, because it's something personal. Right, yeah, yeah. I, <laughs> so, so, I,
3: right. I actually really kind of like that aspect a little bit, because this is starting to be young right at the beginning of the infallible Batman era. I think that was starting to spin out of... Uh,
2: That's true. Batman
3: was pretty antisocial and starting to become the kind of brooding a-hole that he would be in the, the mid-2000s. It really right. takes its roots around this time in the right. pages of uh, JLA and some of his own books. So I actually like that with uh, the context of knowing what, they, what the character would be like uh, shortly after this. It's this uh, I'm never wrong kind of jerk. But, right. Uh,
4: um.
3: And uh, th- this book, I, I think, kind of was like a... Almost similar to the Tales of the Dark Knight. As I don't know where these fall into continuity uh, right. floating around, but uh,
2: I that I, was I my impression was a, is a nice
3: contrast.
2: Yeah, that was my impression as well. That this is kind of a this this book in general, this chronicles was kind of a successor to uh, Tales of the Dark Knight. Or was it Tales of the Dark Knight? Was that what it was called? Yeah, oh, I, I believe
3: so, yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: That's right. Um, so I mean, the the story proper, I would I would give it, I guess. Uh, uh, somewhere between a C plus and a B minus. I mean, it, it's better than average, but it it is pretty simplistic and it's it's pretty short. Um, the arts. Um, the arts tough because the arts a little inconsistent. Um, again, there's there's moments where it is very 90s and a little rushed and not particularly good and polished 90s. And then there's other moments that are just, you know, inspired. They're just gorgeous. You know, where, where Batman stabs the dinosaur in the eye, where he electrocutes the dinosaur is really good. Again, that uh, that panel, you know, the write it off on your taxes uh, with the lightning cry. I mean, that's just, that's beautiful. Um, and then Batman uh, confronting uh, Chase. So, you know, there's there's there are some really good inspired moments, but... It's kind of back and forth, so um, I think I'd go a I think I'd go a B I think I'd go a B minus on the art as well um, because I, I think if there was a little more consistency in it, if it looked a little more like the lightning crack panel through the through the entire story, I think you've really got something dynamic. Um, but as it is with, with with, uh, m- unfortunately, the majority of it is the rushed-looking stuff, and I think that's what makes the, the panels that are so good really jump out, because those ones look like, okay, he really lavished some time on this, and the other ones, eh, just kind of rushed on through. And that may be a product of what the book is. You know, it's not the proper Batman title. It's just, you know, a little throwaway story at the back of an anthology. So, you know, maybe it was, you know, something that he didn't, uh, you know, necessarily bring the A-game. I I don't know. I'm I'm rushing. I'm trying not to disparage the art. I'm just saying I I think it's it's inconsistent, unfortunately. Um, But overall, I, I think that averages out to... What I'm going to say, a am going to say a B minus. So, yeah. Well, I
0: got to give the cover an A just because Batman's playing I Got Your Nose with a T Rex. So, that, uh, yeah, Walt Simonson, that's, I'm going to give it an A. Um, the story, yeah, we got a nice retelling. We have a little humanity in our Batman. We have a little humanity in our Alfred, um, something that I don't know if we have much nowadays. Um, So, for the story, I'm going to give the story, I'll give it a B. And the art, um, yeah, we've got the standout panels, uh, you know, the one where he's, you know, where Chase thought he was dead and, and, the one with the lightning. Uh, but yeah, then there's a few others that it's, it's up and down a little bit, but so it a- averages out on its own. So lo- as well, a, a, a B. So I guess for me, this is going to come up to like a B plus book.
2: Sweet.
3: All
0: right.
3: Kyle. Uh, cover. Uh, I mean, it's Walt Simonson throwing dinosaurs and Batman fighting dinosaur. So it's uh, pretty hard to be bad. Uh, I do see some of the, the wonky anatomy issues, which kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with uh, Simonson. He's usually pretty consistent about that. But I, I would still give it a, a B plus. Uh, certainly worked for me. I, I picked this one up when it was out. And uh, so B+, B plus on the cover. I'm uh, a little higher, I think, on the story than you guys. Uh, I think the concept of the short story is a, a lost art and was starting to become a lost art uh, at this time. Uh, this was five years or... So after Spider-Man Torment came out, so the the era of the the decompressed storytelling had already been kicked off so that we get a self-contained one-and-done story that's, even though it is only, what, eight to ten pages or so, if you were to pick up an image comic or Marvel comic from this time, you probably got more story out of this little cute eight-page story than you did in a a full-length, full-feature comic uh, from either one of those two. So I think it is... Uh, a better than a lot of stuff on the, the stands and i'm a little biased but uh, graham nolan is definitely one of my my batman artists uh, along with norm bray fogel i've always really enjoyed his work and so anytime i can see him drawing batman especially uh, throwing some dinosaurs i was a, a huge jurassic park fan ar- around this time so i'd probably give the the r to b plus and so did i give a, a letter grade on my my story i'd probably I get a minus i don't think so. you gave one on the story so uh, B-plus or A-minus overall. Okay, that, that
1: leaves it to me. Uh, I have always, since I'm a little kid, I've always had a soft spot for dinosaurs, so that's that's always going to work in, in favor of the grading on a book like this. The cover, it's like I want this to be an A-cover, but it's just not for me. Uh, the Batman anatomy takes a little bit away. I really like... The fact that his cape is caught on the on the teeth of the dinosaur yeah that's kind of a cool touch that he added to it the dinosaur i feel like it should just look more ferocious he almost looks disinterested he's got his nose like that like i, don't, I you know if you're drawing, if you're in the jaws of a t-rex it should just look a little bit more frightening than that this 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 t-rex almost looks like he's ready to go to sleep
3: well it is a robot
1: yeah, I know, but still, it's the, this is the cover. It, it should be just a little bit more ferocious. The the color palette on it doesn't bother me at all. I think the orange gives it a kind of a good contrast and really would make it stand out on the newsstand if it was in fact on a newsstand, which it wasn't at this point. But even in a comic book store, when they have all the new books lined up, I, th- I think that orange would just draw your eye to it. So I'm going to say, by virtue of Walt Simonson always drawing better than his anatomy would indicate that you thought he was drawing and the fact that it's a dinosaur, I'm going to say it's a solid B cover. For some reason when you start talking about backup stories, I find myself to be much more forgiving of small little lapses than I am in the art for backup stories. I feel like the story, you know, they're trying to compress an awful lot into a small space so it could affect the writing of it, but there's no reason that the art can't hold up, despite the, the shortness of it. So maybe that's unfair, but I, I give this, I, I definitely give the writing a little bit more of a uh, of a pass. In this particular one, I kind of th- think it's a cool story. I like the whole, whole idea of you know how did he get that dinosaur? You know, we still don't know how it was actually put into the into the Batcave, but we know where it came from now, and, and that's kind of a cool thing. I do. I think they also had a story about where the giant penny came from that I seem to remember reading at yeah. one point. Uh, in fact I think we may have even covered it on the show but uh, the story I, I think it's pretty solid I'm, I'm going to say a B plus on the story the artwork I agree it's very inconsistent uh, I like the the kind of animated style to it the, the you know kind of simplicity without ever being overly cartoonish uh you know, you mentioned Mike Parabek. I kind of, I always enjoyed his artwork. Um, I'm going to say a B for the uh, for the art. I think it's you know, there's there's definitely panels that could be improved, but overall, it's, it's decent storytelling and it's got some that that rise above the rest to to bring it up to beyond average. So overall, I'm going to say it's a B book and uh, you know, enjoyable.
2: Awesome. Thanks, so, Chris.
1: That'll be that'll be our show for today, Kyle. You want to uh, pimp your show one more time before we wrap it up?
3: Yeah. Uh, thanks again for having me on. Uh, I have a, a number of shows that are on one feed. That's you can find that feed on iTunes under King Size Comics Giant Size Fun or go to the blog headquarters which are uh, at King Size Comics Giant Size Fun We'll have another podcast on its own feed called the Superman and Captain Marvel Power Hour. You can find that on iTunes or at the blog supermancaptainmarvel.blogspot.com Awesome.
1: Alright, cool. Uh, we, uh, we've talked, I'm not going to even talk about what issues we've talked about, but we've talked about other things that Kyle may come on and do with us and in all likelihood the next time he's on with us it'll be an Avengers Spotlight. So all right we'll we'll, we'll, leave, we'll <laughs> just leave that floating out there for people for whenever that happens to occur oh crap that means i gotta start editing the next one damn it maybe yeah. if i wait for you to edit stuff let's just say i ain't getting any younger dr bill <laughs>
0: I, I had to mute out a few times. One, because I'm coughing, and two, because there was some chit-chat going on in the kitchen that I had to tell them to get the F out of there. Shut <laughs> up!
3: So, ma, I'm making a podcast! Your garage isn't uh, insulated real well, or what? It's not soundproof, no, no. We've heard
0: we've heard motorcycles go by that, what, somebody thought it was... Was that, was that a cow? What was that? <laughs> Got seen my garage. My
3: you're cave. not the only one podcasting from your garage right now. I'm sitting in the, the front seat of my car inside my garage. So. Oh, my God. I, I, just, I, 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 just thinking, I, I hope the car is not running. You know? no. no. I'm
1: just thinking you're, you're not the only one podcasting from a from garage right now. Turn around. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at backtothebins at gmail.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy all rights reserved each and every month the two true freaks network produces dozens of new and exciting episodes which regularly reach tens of thousands of loyal listeners worldwide sponsorship and or advertising opportunities are available inquiries may be made via email to two true freaks at gmail.com please take a moment to stop by the two true freaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts won't you thanks And we'll see you next week.
0: (laughs) Yes, you do have a good la-la. That didn't sound right. (laughs)